If you've got your Bibles with you or want to pull them out of the, the pew or the seats in front of you, uh, we're this morning in Luke 17. I know it says in your bulletins Luke 16. Uh, that was my mistake when I turned in the scripture. If you're one, as many of you do, that like to read ahead and you read Luke 16, then you are completely confused as to how I'm making that a sermon. Uh, and I'm not. We're in Luke 17 this morning. We are um, going to be reading one of the, the stories that, that I remember very vividly from my childhood when I was young and just learning to read and, and you know, knee-high to a grasshopper. Uh, I had what they call kind of Bible readers. I don't know the exact name. You've probably seen them over the years. They were individual storybooks that artistically and simply retold some of the favorite stories of both the Old and the New Testament stories, you know, like uh, Daniel and the lion's dead, David and Goliath, and some of the gospel stories. And one of the ones I, I vividly remember is this story from the Gospel of Luke, this encounter that Jesus has and the healing of these 10 men with leprosy. And as we read it, if you're familiar with it or even if you're hearing it for the first time, I think the, the reason that this lesson was included in those stories will be very, very apparent to you. So let's, let's turn to the Scripture. Let's turn to this encounter that Jesus has in this Gospel, in the 17th chapter of Luke's Gospel. And this is what we read beginning at verse 11. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria, Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. He was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, Were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Friends, sisters, this word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, that um, you'd speak to us through your word and through these words that I pray are inspired by your spirit and that you change our hearts to hearts of gratitude and praise for all you have done. In Christ we pray. Amen. Now here's my confession. I started this week on this message. I, I chose this scripture Last week, as I was going through some of the, the texts for the day and kind of the, the calendar that I follow that each week in the, the lectionary has a variety of texts, and I was reading through the scriptures, and uh, I kind of landed on this story in Luke, and it was, as I said, one of my favorites from a kid, from being a child, and I thought, I'm going to preach on, on that story. And uh, the more I started to kind of unpack it, and the more I started to work on the sermon, the, the thought crossed my mind that maybe I should wait a few weeks on this one. Maybe I should put it off because, quite obviously, it's a story of, of gratitude. It's a, it's a Thanksgiving story. And I thought, well, this fits perfect at the end of November. This story would be perfect then. Maybe I should just put this off, and it'll tie right into the Thanksgiving holiday, and it, it'll, it'll work well then. 
And I, and I toyed, and I kind of wrestled with doing that for a few moments. And then I thought, wait a minute, why? Why? Why am I compartmentalizing gratitude? Why am I treating gratitude and thanksgiving as if it's an annual celebration? I mean, I realized in my own thoughts I was betraying something, which is that, that, that thanksgiving and expressing gratitude is seasonal rather than what it should be, which is daily. Rather than something that is in the very fabric of our being, that is, that is a, a practice, daily practice of, of lifting to God the reasons that we have to be grateful. And I think my own thoughts kind of betrayed the fact that I have to work on that in my life. And I thought, if I have to work on it, I'm going to venture to say there's probably at least one or two others that do as well. And so I stuck with this very profound yet simple story of, of gratitude because I believe it's something that a lot of us need to at least be reminded of. And that is the need for us to be people who name our blessings, specifically name our blessings. I, let me tell you what I mean. Most of us are good at what I call umbrella gratitude, which is, dear Lord, I thank you for your many blessings. Dear Lord, I thank you for the gifts that you so freely bestow upon us. They're the, the large things. And, and I'm not diminishing that. I'm not, I'm not um, criticizing that. But they're the, they're the prayers that we pray corporately in worship because our blessings come from different places. Our experiences are different. So very often as a pastor and we pray, we'll pray, we thank you, Lord, for our many blessings. And then we can all kind of imagine what our blessings are. But there's a practice that I think is very, very important to us in faith. In fact, it's something I remember doing in a very unique way. It's not the only time I've done it. But, but a, a year or so ago, a little over a year ago, the first summer that I was away in Kentucky, and I've told you and you've heard numerous times about me going to the monastery, the Abbey of Gethsemane, and, and having a day of silent retreat and prayer. One of the things that we did on that retreat was a prayer walk. Now, many of you are familiar with a prayer walk. If you go to Dayspring, they have a prayer walk. If you've been on Alpha retreats, you've done prayer walks. But often they're out in the woods and they're a path and, and they take you to places that focus you in on very specific um, prayer, um, uh, prayer focuses or, or, or um, intentional prayer. Uh, very, very often their prayer walks will have scriptures and they'll have maybe artistic renditions or, or statues of things that will tell the, the, the passion narrative of Jesus, his arrest, his trial, his beating, his crucifixion, and his resurrection with the idea of focusing you in prayer. And that's what this prayer walk had. But there was also a stage early in the walk when you came to a part of the trail and it was this, this section of path was maybe 40 or 50 yards. I don't remember. But what I remember was there were like just cobblestones uh, that were nowhere else. They had just kind of popped out of, out of nowhere, and they were, the path was lined with these stones. And what we were instructed to do was to pray with each step. 
Specifically pray with each step. And this is how we instructed. Every time our foot hit a stone at whatever pace we were going, we were to give God thanks for a blessing in our lives. Specifically to name our blessings. To name the people in our life who are or have blessed us. To name the circumstances in our lives which we have been blessed. To name the moments in our lives where we felt God's answer to prayer. Whatever it was. But the point was, it was not general thank you for our blessings. It was each step intentionally naming the ways that we've been blessed. For you and for me. And in this case, for me. And it's a practice I have repeated to confess not as often as I should. Because it frames our walk with Christ and it opens us up to greater blessings. And that's the lesson of Luke chapter 17. At, at, at the level, it is, it's a very, very simple story. The scripture tells us that Jesus was between Samaria and Galilee. What that means is he was on the outskirts of the towns and the villages. He was kind of out in the woods, if you will. And that's important because this is the kind of place that Jesus would encounter people like, like these ten lepers. And I don't think it's an accident that Jesus spent a lot of time in these kind of places because, good lesson for the church, Jesus had a tendency to go to where the need was, not necessarily wait for the need to find him. And so Jesus is out in this place, and the scriptures say that these ten lepers appear, and it says they stood at a distance and they cried out, Jesus, have mercy on us. Take pity on us. Now, you have to understand that that's significant. They stood at a distance. S many of you know this. Some of you maybe not. But leprosy was more than just a physical affliction. We talked about this a, a number of weeks ago when we talked about the woman who was bleeding, who was hemorrhaging for 12 years. It was the same kind of a thing. To be a leper pushed you outside of the bounds of, of quote-unquote normal society. You were, were um, forced out. One, because leprosy was believed to be highly contagious. We know now it's not, but then they believed that it was. So you had to get away from everybody you cared about and loved. But also because of the, 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 the laws, the Jewish laws, you were also deemed to be unclean. So you couldn't live in society as you knew it. You couldn't worship in the temple. You couldn't be around the people that you cared about or your family because your very presence could make others unclean. Your touch could make others unclean. So it's significant that it says they stood at a distance because they understood the laws. They understood the requirements. They didn't want to contaminate Jesus. So they stood at a distance and they yelled, Jesus, have pity on us. For whatever reason, whatever they had heard about Jesus, whatever motivated them, they believed there was a possibility that this miracle worker, this rabbi, this teacher could do something for them. And they had nothing to lose anyway. So they came and they asked basically for healing. And there's a phrase that is repeated twice in the scriptures in various ways that I find very, very significant. And the first happens in verse 14 as it pertains to Jesus. It says, when he saw them. When he saw them. Now, at one level, it makes sense. Of course, he saw them. Everybody probably saw them, heard them, knew they were there. But I think 
Jesus seeing and other people seeing is very, very different. In fact, I know it's very, very different. You see, we, we see a lot of things. We are aware of a lot of things. But some of us, and, and often I'm guilty of this, walk around with blinders on. And that is, we know there's a lot of need around us. We're aware, but, but if we're honest, we di- don't really want to see it. Because it might make us uncomfortable. It might challenge us to have to do something. It may unsettle us a little bit. And so we tend to, to have tunnel vision. We're aware of it. We know it, but, but we don't really want to have to necessarily acknowledge it. When I was in Seattle this summer, spending time among the homeless in the city, I walked out one night with a friend named Eric at 10 at night in Seattle, and we walked down into the homeless sections with the intentionality of watching. And it was uncomfortable, and it was nerve-wracking, and it wasn't the safest thing I've ever done. But it's amazing what I saw that I'd never really seen before. It's amazing some of the need and community and connection that I was seeing among people in this circumstance. That was a moment for me. That was a reality for Jesus. Jesus saw people. He saw them. Not as diseased, not as marginalized, not as cursed of God. He saw them as people of value. And so I think it's significant. Jesus saw them. And how do we know he saw them? Because he does every time. He does hear what he does every time. He sees somebody in need. He meets the need. He looks at the lepers, and he says to them, he gives them instructions. It's a different kind of healing than you see in a lot of places. He doesn't touch them. They're at the distance. I don't think it's because he wouldn't. I think it's because they stayed at a distance. But he says to them, go to the priests. He says, go present yourself to the priests. Now, this is stage one of being declared clean. In order to return to society, in order to return to your relationships and your family and your communities and your villages, you had to be declared clean without disease. And that came from the priest. So Jesus says, go and start the process of restoration. Interesting, though, it doesn't say you're healed and go. In fact, the scriptures say that they went, and as they went, then they were healed. So there's a little bit of a lesson on faith. They took Jesus at his word, whether it's because they truly believed or whether it's because they didn't have anything to lose. It doesn't matter. They went, and they were healed. And So that is a familiar kind of a story for Jesus. See a need, meet a need. But then there's kind of the pivot. And we have a reoccurrence of the verb. Verse 15. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. So now we have a contrast in the story. Now we have a fork in the road, if you will. These group of ten lepers, these ten men living in a community together because they were the only people that could be near one another, are all healed. But the Scripture says 
only one, when he saw that he was healed, came back to say thank you. And it is interesting at this point where we tend to focus our attention. Who is it that kind of gains your attention? Is it the one who came back to give thanks? Or maybe you're like me. You're more fascinated by the nine who didn't. See, I'm fascinated by the nine who didn't come back to say thanks because that baffles me. At least initially it baffles me. Because I know society today is different than it was 2,000 years ago, but I'd venture to say that one of the things that hasn't changed is one of the earliest lessons that are instilled in the life of kids, whether that was in the day of Jesus or the day of today. When children start to talk, when they start to comprehend the actions of other people, what's one of the first things we teach them to do? Say thank you. To say thank you. Somebody gives them a, a piece of candy, a family member. Say thank you. Somebody gives them a compliment. Say thank you. We expect our children to learn the lesson of gratitude. Somebody in our lives hopefully instilled that lesson in us and expected that of us. And here's what, what I know. We expect it of other people. I would bet... I wouldn't bet. That's not good. I would <laughs> venture to say... That we can all name somebody in our life, in our circle of relationships, in our knowing that was an ungrateful person. Somebody who didn't express gratitude or appreciation for the things that they had been given or for what others had done for them. I would, I keep wanting to say bet, I would, what the heck, I would bet you can think of somebody that way. I can think of those kind of people. We, we recognize people who aren't grateful. Sometimes it's little things that bug us. I may have told you before, but, but one of my, my greatest pet peeves, and it's silly, but it is, is that when I'm out driving, if traffic is merging together, or I'm on a road and you're trying to get out of a parking lot and I stop to let you in, I expect a courtesy wave. I expect you to do, I expect you to hit, yeah, that's all right, how about that? My people, I expect you to hit your hazards. I want something that lets you know, that lets me know that you appreciate the fact that I just let you in because I'm not always so gracious. So, uh, so I want that. Now, I know that says something about me, but, th but that's, that's very often the way that we operate. We expect at least some gesture of gratitude when we do something for, for someone else. And sometimes it's far more significant. I was reading um, kind of an excerpt of a story of a, a man by the name of Edward Spencer. Edward Spencer was a student at the universe, uh, Northwestern University in 1860. So we're going back a long way. In 1860, there was a, an accident, a, a boat that was ferrying people between Chicago and Milwaukee. And the details, I, I'd read one account of it, and I kind of told the story in one of the early services, and somebody came and said that, was, that the details of the story were wrong. So I'm not exactly sure exactly the details of how it happened, but here's what we know without doubt. This, this boat, this kind of ferry boat, the Lady Elgin, capsized. It sank. Something happened, and it went down. Over 300 people died on Lake Michigan when this boat sank. 
But there were a handful that were saved. There were a handful that were able to get to shore. There were a handful that were able to make it. But the, the shore itself, and when all of this happened, it was, it was very dangerous. And the breaker line, and, and I mean, there was just, even getting to shore didn't remove you from the risk. And so some Northwestern University students came out and they tried to help. One of those was Edward Spencer. In fact, from what I've read, there's a plaque commemorating his um, heroic efforts in the gym at Northwestern University. Edward Spencer braved the water, braved the breakers, and is credited with saving the lives of 17 people. At his own at great cost to himself, as the rest of his life he would spend in a wheelchair because of injuries he sustained saving the lives of others, not to mention the trauma that he had to overcome from the experience. Here's what's so fascinating, maybe sad about the story. Many years later, he was being interviewed about the events. And the interviewer asked him, Mr. Spencer, what is the one thing that you remember most vividly? What's the thing you remember most significantly about that night? And he said, what I remember most is that out of the 17 people I saved, not one person ever said thank you. Exactly. Wow. That's, that's what I think. Because how, how does that happen? How do you not express gratitude? How do we live lives like that? So I read this story. And I read the story initially about these nine who don't come back and say thank you. And I think, what a bunch of ungrateful, selfish individuals. Until I start to think a little bit deeper. And I start to wonder a little bit more about them and why it is that they don't say thank you. And I think it comes back to that phrase in reference to the one who did. When he saw that he was healed. It comes back to what they were looking at. Let me tell you what I mean. They knew their greatest need prior to meeting Jesus was to be healed. Their whole future, their whole life depended upon being healed from leprosy. Without that, they had no life with anyone else other than other lepers. When they got word from Jesus that they were going to be healed, when they were given that instructions to go and present themselves to the priest, they began to see the next thing. That next thing was to be cleared by a priest, by, to be declared clean. That's what they saw, the need to get to a priest. They start to see, just like the one that the illness is going away, but what they see first and foremost is the next hurdle to be cleared, which is the priest. And I would venture to say that as soon as they saw the priest and were declared clean, the next hurdle they saw that needed to be cleared was to convince their family and their community and their towns that they were no longer diseased. And that would have been the next hurdle to clear. And of course, after that, once they had that acceptance, they would have figured out, well, where are we going to live and how are we going to support ourselves and how are we going to get reinvolved in whatever our profession or our job is. And so they would have seen the next hurdle that they needed to clear. You see, what they were doing is they were always seeing one step ahead. But here's the problem. They never saw the moment they were in. They saw where they needed to be, but they never stopped to reflect on what was happening in that moment. Except for one, when he saw what Jesus had done. He went back. See, I don't think they were quite as ungrateful as we maybe give them credit for being. 
but they just weren't living in the moment. They were always looking ahead. And because of that, they couldn't appreciate the gift that they had. And here's why my heart softens toward them. Because I'm afraid that too often, I'm more like the nine and less like the one. I'm afraid that in my own life, too often, I'm looking for the next thing. Tony and I, we, we, every week, every month, like many of you, we sit down and we have to pay our bills. And the obligation and the need, first and foremost, is to put food on the table and pay the bills. But then once we do that, then we have to think about the next thing. And, and Ryan and Cassidy are getting older, so, so we've got to think, well, we've got to be planning for college. So we need to make sure we're getting money put away for college and we're thinking about their future. But, of course, once that need is met, then we have to think, well, one day, Lord willing, we're going to retire. And we don't want to be a burden on anybody. So we need to make sure that we're thinking about retirement and putting money away. And, and of course, then we have, you know, this obligation that we may have. And all of these things are important. All of these things matter. But here's the problem. When I fall guilty... When I am guilty of looking to the next thing, I don't pause to be thankful in the moment. I don't pause to be thankful for the blessing I have right then and there because I'm moving past that blessing too quickly to look to meet the next need and the next obligation. I do it personally. I do it professionally. You know, my favorite time of the week is Sunday afternoons. Sunday afternoons are the best because I have seven days before I have to preach again on Sunday afternoons. And my goal is always to relax on Sunday afternoons, when I can, when I have church stuff. It's just to relax and enjoy and be thankful for the day. And I will tell you how many times I will sit in front of the television, I'll turn on the football game, and I'll open up the laptop, and I'll start reading scriptures for next week. Now, is there anything wrong with that? No. But here's too often what I don't do. I don't first stop and say, Lord, thank you for today. Lord, thank you for the worship services we had, the people that came, the conversations that were uh, encountered, the fellowship that was enjoyed, the, the songs that were sung. I don't thank God for the moment because I immediately start to think about the next thing. And I become too much like the nine and not enough like the one. It's okay to look ahead, but we're called first to be people of gratitude. And when we're constantly looking ahead, I wonder how well we can be thankful for the moment and for the blessings that we have. God wants us to be people of thanksgiving because we're better people when we're people of gratitude. We are better when we're grateful. You know, here's the interesting thing. The one who went back, who had been healed, it's interesting the final words that Jesus speaks to him. He says, go for your faith has made you well. Now, we've heard Jesus say that before in the Gospels. Your faith has made you well. But here's what's interesting. He'd already been healed. He came back and Jesus says, your faith has made you well. But he'd already been healed of leprosy. The nine who didn't come back had been healed of leprosy. Some of the translations of our scriptures change that reading a little bit based on the Greek. And it says, your faith has saved you. That leper gets a second blessing. And it's not just a physical healing, it's a spiritual blessing. Jesus is saying, your spirit is blessed. Salvation has come to you because you have had a grateful heart. When we live lives of gratitude, we open ourselves to the deeper blessings that God wishes to bestow upon us. We 
we open our hearts to the work of God, even in the midst of some very tough stuff. And let me, let me say, I know that, that we all deal with stuff in our lives, and some of you are dealing with, with very difficult things. But gratitude, thanksgiving, opens us up to blessings. And here's the other thing. We're just better people when we're grateful people. We're just better people. Show me somebody who's ingra- un- ungrateful for their blessings. Show me somebody who cannot show gratitude, and I'll show you a pretty unhappy person. It just is. It absolutely is. And, and if you're finding yourself in an unhappy place, maybe gratitude's at the heart of it. A few years ago, there was a study done which um, took two groups of people. Some were college students and some were older folks that were dealing with, with health crisis. And it put them in two groups. One group, every morning, was instructed to get up and to write out their blessings, to write out the things they were thankful for. Every morning, just to write a list of five things that they were thankful for that day. It could be very deep, significant things like relationships or family. It could be really superficial things like, you know, their favorite music group or or something like that. It didn't have to be profound, just five things they were thankful for. The other group was instructed to wake up every morning and write down five things um, that bothered them, five things that aggravated them, five things that they were unhappy about. And they would write things like couldn't find parking today, uh, traffic was heavy, or more significant health things. But every day they wrote the things that they were not thankful for. At the end of the study, and this doesn't take rocket science to see where this is going, This is what they found. The group that woke up every day and listed their their blessings, they had a more positive outlook on life. They exercised more. Those who even in health crisis said that they slept better and they woke up refreshed. They were happier And interestingly enough, they were more willing to do things for other people who were in need. They were were better people for it. They were better people because their eyes were fixed on their blessings, not on their wants or their needs. See, what it comes down to is what do we see? That's, That's the first. When he saw, he was healed. What was the key to his gratitude? Seeing what had been done for him. I wonder what we see. It is easy for all of us to get caught up into seeing the next stage of life, the next mountain to climb, the next hurdle to jump, the next goal to accomplish, the next need to be met. It's easy to see that stuff. And we should at some level. But do we first see what God has done? Do we first take time to give thanks for the blessings of our lives? key to a healthy relationship with Christ. The key to a heart open to the blessings of God is to have a heart of gratitude, to be thankful. Not to diminish the challenges, not to, not to push aside the, the, the struggles, but to start from a place of thanksgiving for what God has done. Because I will promise you this, no matter what you face, no matter how difficult your moment may be, no matter what obstacles are before you, I promise you this, you can find 
reasons in your life to be thankful. And it will change your outlook. It will change your day because it will open you up to the presence of Jesus Christ. When you look at your life, when you look at your circumstances, what do you see? Before we get to what is to come, let's be thankful to the Lord above for what is. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, that we'd have hearts of gratitude and thanksgiving. Not because we're naive to the challenges, not because we ignore the obstacles, but because we first recognize your blessings and your presence and your strength and your grace. It helps us to meet those obstacles and face those challenges. Give us eyes to see your blessings and hearts of thanksgiving and praise. We pray in Christ Jesus. Amen.